Everyone is talking about this. The true story of a rape case is written by mother and teacher Lisa Lennox. On one ordinary July evening in 2021, the lives of Lisa and her family were turned upside down when her 17-year-old daughter Beatrice, or B as she prefers to be known, became the victim of one of the worst crimes that can befall anyone. What follows is the story of the aftermath of this horrific event as Lisa, her husband Phil, youngest daughter Iris, and of course, and most importantly, B herself, are forced to navigate the police and the legal system in their fight for justice. Please be aware that this audiobook contains references to rape, sexual assault, mental health conditions, and eating disorders. There is also occasional strong language. After the rotten summer, September is mild and warm. Some people at work have donned their winter 60 denier tights already, whilst the rest of us are still wafting around in cotton dresses, trying to ignore the inevitable changing of the season for as long as possible. Throughout August, Beatrice barely left the house. When she did, she had to be accompanied everywhere. Walking by her side and seeing how she tenses up and begins to shake whenever she sees a lone male, particularly one with similar skin colour to her attacker, breaks my heart. She is suffering from PTSD, flashbacks, panic attacks. She can hardly sleep, eat, wash, function. She has lost so much. Her innocence, the last days of her childhood, her independence, her future. All because of the actions of that foul, predatory man who saw something he wanted and took it because he thought he could. I no longer have the energy to hate him, but I do despise him, in that way that anyone who preys on someone weaker than them is despicable. I encourage and cajole B to try to go to school, because I obviously want her to complete her education, but also because now I am back at work, I hate leaving her alone in the house all day. As well as the ongoing concerns about B, Iris is also suffering and traumatised. She's always been quiet, shy and introspective, but recently she's become tearful, appearing at my bedroom door with eyes swimming in moisture and a look of utter misery on her face. She's been through so much. All the years of Beatrice's depression and eating disorder, the fear those things engendered, the lack of attention Phil and I were able to give her because so much was expended on B, the meals, the appointments, the courses on how to look after and live with someone with an eating disorder. Now Iris's loss and trauma are all coming to the surface, driven out by this latest horror. I'm still hassling David on a weekly basis for the alarm so that B can get back to a semblance of a normal life. Since I've been telling people, only a few, those I'm close to or those I feel need to know, about what happened to B, I've heard numerous stories about the constant, ongoing, never-ending harassment women repeatedly suffer from. All the young, and not-so-young women I know, at work, at my fitness class, tell me they run the gamut of pesterers on a daily basis, men asking for their phone numbers, tagging along behind them as they walk, catcalling them, insulting them, making them feel at best uncomfortable and at worst downright scared. Most say that if asked for a phone number, they give it because if they don't, the man or men can turn nasty. It's easier to appease, give them what they want, and then block the number if they call. I'm aghast to hear this, in my day, it was flashes who plagued the lives of young girls out and about. I've lost count of the number of times I've been flashed at or masturbated in front of. On a shopping trip to Oxford with my friends, in the dunes of a majestic beach on the Algarve, 
under the palm trees in the Sinai. The most notable occasion was when my best friend and I were in sixth form and walking back to school from our lunchtime trip to town. They say that flashes don't go out on the street so much anymore because they can get their grubby kicks from their filthy habits at home on the internet, but Wayne Cousins was known to have exposed himself before he abducted, raped and murdered his victim. It's a gateway crime, as I understand it. One friend I related B's story to told me how her mother had only just disclosed to her that, when she'd first come to London as a young married woman, she had been raped in a tube train carriage by a schoolboy in full uniform. He just walked over, raped her, and when the train stopped at his station, casually got up, slung his satchel over his shoulder, and alighted onto the platform. She had never told anyone. Another friend tells me how her daughter, about a year after the event, revealed to her that she'd been raped at a party. Both complainants had made the decision that there was no point in going to the police. There's only one question that needs to be asked here. When is this going to stop? One word even. When. David gets back to me. It now turns out that it's not an alarm that B will be given. It's an app for the phone, but he doesn't know how to install it or doesn't have authorization to install it, or perhaps the app isn't operational yet. Often when I talk to him, I feel that I'm descending into Alice's rabbit hole. Nothing seems to make complete sense, and when I finish each call, I'm frequently none the wiser. I keep trying to get him to communicate with me by email, because I have access to that at work when I can't use my phone, but he still hasn't given me his email address, and when I try to make it up, following the Met's email convention, it bounces straight back. David Smith is clearly a common name in the force. It's not until much later that I found out that the victim's charter states that victims, and by default their families, have a right to be communicated with in their preferred way, i.e. that David should have been immediately responsive to my requests that we stay in touch through email rather than text message. I'm also still trying to impress upon David that important communication must come to me as well as Beatrice. He keeps citing her privacy and I have to remind him that it was only with regard to some of the incident details that she didn't want us to know. In every other respect, she wants, and needs, me and Phil to be abreast of the situation. David does tell me something important, though. They've got some CCTV from the road that leads from the tube station. Apparently it shows B walking up the hill on her own. So where did she encounter the man then, I ask? At the location, answers David, and there are no cameras there. I put the phone down. I'm still fretting away at why on earth this man would be in that place. It makes no sense. I'm sure David told me when they found him that if he were given bail, they would make not entering our borough a condition which implies that he doesn't live locally. So why would he be there? If he's not local, how does he even know that little corner exists? It doesn't make any sense. I will spend a lot of time puzzling over this, worrying at it, unable to make sense of it, over the next few months. It won't be until we are in court, listening to the evidence, that I will find out how misleading David's words are. That weekend I go to the park to run out my anger and frustration, hoping to take solace from nature. Emerging from an avenue of trees, the sun greets me, raindrops sparkling in its rays. When I get back to the house, a delicious smell of baking emanates from the front door. I inhale it as I stretch, and when I go inside, B is taking a tray of chocolate chip cookies out of the oven and placing them on the cooling rack. I hug her and hold her tight, because every time I'm away from her for however short or long a time, 
to see her again feels like a blessing. There are mothers out there who will never see their precious girls again, and I can't bear it for them. And I don't know how they bear it, how they keep going, when what we've experienced is bad enough. I make a jug of coffee and B and I drink it, and eat cookies, and discuss for the umpteenth time why a squirrel would not make a good pet, regardless of what TikTokers would have her believe. And I forget, momentarily, my aching heart. I'm attempting the evening standard cryptic crossword one evening when Beatrice runs in. Mum, she says, her eyes glistening with tears. I've just spoken to David. Instantaneously, I pick up my phone to see if I've missed a call from him or a text or email. Nope, nothing. He says the guy has applied for bail, B sobs. My heart drops like a lead weight into my shoes. I feel nauseous and perspiration breaks out on my forehead. I don't know how we'll cope with this. But it's okay because it's been refused. But it's okay because it's been refused, B goes on. I collapse forwards, head hanging down, pen dropping from my hand onto the floor where it rolls off beneath the sofa. Thank God for that, I reply. I was petrified then. Me too, rejoins B. David said about the application, then he paused for a really long time before he told me he hadn't got it. I was so scared. FFS, the voice in my head screams out. Why on earth does David persist in ignoring my request that all key communication is filtered through me? What if Beatrice had been on a station platform when she got that news? Young people do stupid things sometimes, hasty and rash, ill thought through, seeking a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Because that is what I'm working to believe this is, this rape of my daughter. A temporary problem that we will overcome, rise above, emerge from like a collective phoenix from the ashes. It will make us stronger for sure. I just have to convince everyone of that. I get up and hug my daughter. That's good. That's the best we can hope for right now, I tell her. Bee goes back to her bedroom to finish her homework, though how she can concentrate I've no idea. I shuffle to the kitchen and start the supper. It's a distraction, but not enough of one. Once everything's cooking, I go to my bedroom, retrieve my laptop, and hammer out an angry email to David. I've finally got his email address, asking him to make sure he includes me when sharing critical news with Beatrice. The month wears on. The six-month period we will have to wait until the trial seems impossibly long. I expect every day that B will say she wants to withdraw. If he were out on bail and we had to wait two and a half years... I'm quite sure she would just give up. Who wouldn't? A little later in the month, one particularly pleasant Indian summer Thursday, Iris is off to a birthday party. It strikes me as odd that it's on a school night, but I have already agreed that she could go, so I have to honour that. She's been so sad recently, maybe some fun and entertainment would cheer her up. I've said I'll see her onto the bus that takes her to right outside the restaurant where the party is taking place, and that I'll go back at 9.30pm to collect her. Mom, 10pm, please, she pleads. No, absolutely not, I insist. It's far too late, and even if you think you want to stay up, you'll regret it in the morning when I'm waking you for school. Reluctantly, she concedes. Phil has got back from work earlier than usual, and he's outside, talking to Spencer, sharing a beer by the garden gate. They're probably discussing football, 
So predictable, but that is honestly truly what they usually talk about. Iris is upstairs, getting ready. I don't even mind that she's putting makeup on. It seems like the kind of thing a teenage girl should be doing, rather than battling an eating disorder as B had been doing at her age. Iris, I call up the stairs. We'll go in five minutes, okay? Mum, says Iris as she comes down the stairs. She looks suddenly five years older, with mascara and glossy lips and some elaborate hairdo I've never seen her sport before. Holly is on the bus already, and I really don't want her to see me being escorted to the stop by you. She'll think I'm a dog. I open my mouth to protest and then shut it again. She's right. She needs to have some semblance of independence, no matter what has happened. Okay, I concede. But I'm going to follow you and see you get on the bus. I'll be discreet, but I need to do it. Then you won't have to text me from the bus, because I'll know you're on it. Sensing defeat, Iris nods her agreement. She opens the front door and leaves. I shove the dinner in the oven, giving Iris a few minutes to get ahead of me. Then I follow her outside, pausing briefly to say hi to Spencer and to tell Phil that we'll eat at 7.45. By this time, Iris is already out of sight round the corner and I hurry after her. I reach the main road just in time to see the bus approach the stop and Iris climb aboard, safe and sound. Or so I think. I give her a wave and turn around to go back home almost bumping into a young girl talking loudly on her phone in a foreign language. Pretty, the proprietor of the corner shop, is standing in her doorway enjoying the evening sunshine, and we have a chat about the unseasonably warm weather. I go back to the house, serve up supper, and watch something mindless on TV. I don't look at my phone for an hour or so. When I do pick it up, I see a text message from Iris that I hadn't heard arrive. Mum, as I was crossing the road, a girl came up to me on the traffic island and asked if I was Beatrice Canning, she said she had something urgent to talk to me about. I just said no and got on the bus. But it's a bit weird, isn't it? Kiss, kiss, kiss. What the actual? My heart stops. My mind goes on overdrive, trying to make sense of what I'm reading. It must be something to do with the rapist. Who on earth would be out looking for B, asking for her by name, other than someone associated with him? But why would he send someone to find her? My stomach turns over with sick fear and dread. There can only be one reason. He wants to make her drop the case, is prepared to bribe or threaten or intimidate her to do so. Bile rises in my throat and my legs start to shake. I show Phil the message. He creases his forehead in puzzlement. There was a young woman, he relates, talking on her phone, not in English, hanging around in the street right outside the house while I was talking to Spencer. Spencer smiled at her and said hello. I didn't think anything of it, but I do recall her getting a bit agitated when Iris came out. I think she followed Iris down the road, I say grimly, thinking that Iris was B. But how did she know B's full name? My voice shakes as the reality of the situation sinks in. Or our address. Phil shakes his head, his lips tightened in a grimace. No idea. Fuck. I'm going to get Iris in the car. I'll sit outside the door until it's time for her to leave. I'm not taking any chances. I nod, mutely. When he's gone, I sit on the sofa, gnawing at the inside of my cheek. I text David and Luke, explaining what's happened, and then stand at the window, watching and waiting for Iris and Phil to return, hands folded across my chest to try to stop myself picking the skin from my fingers. The enormous reality of what has happened is hard to take in. Mistaking Iris for Beatrice, someone has approached her in the street and asked for her by name. Someone out there knows where we live and is looking for my daughter. 
and I don't know what will happen if they find her.